Number 514, we've been asked to mark, and we'll use that at the appropriate time this evening as a hymn of encouragement, a hymn of invitation. And as certainly we're often able to state again how blessed and you and I are, in fact, to be able to come together this evening to notice again that text we mentioned at least at one point this morning from Psalm 29, verse number 2. In fact, to give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And tonight that's our wish and our desire as those who would be His people to adore and to honor Him in the way that He would find pleasing. And as we do that tonight, we will continue our series of studies in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. It is to that book, the opening chapter thereof, I would invite your attention as we continue our study there this evening. Last Lord's Day evening, we in fact began a series of studies on the book of Hebrews. And we noticed a few passing things or passing observations about that book. And among them, we recognize that Hebrews has well been called the gem of the Bible. It does synthesize better than any other single book out of the 66 the thoroughness and greatness of Old and New Testament, but the surpassing superiority of that which you and I would call the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word better is the key word other than the word Jesus, emphasizing that the things found in this book are set forth as better than any other alternative, any other option, because these are founded on better promises, and the reward, of course, is tremendous and mighty indeed. Those thoughts have brought us then to the realization that the book of Hebrews was addressed originally to a group of people who were suffering mightily, beneath the onslaught of persecution. And as such, they needed encouragement to remain faithful, loyal, and true to Jesus, and to not forsake Him for a pathway that would make things easier here in this life. You and I perhaps have heard that phrase, that things take the path of least resistance. If one had the choice of pursuing a roadway that was difficult and hard and treacherous in light of the persecution for mankind, or one that was easy to travel because there was no persecution, would it not be tempting to take that pathway where there was no persecution? Well, these former Hebrew Christians were in that very position, and it would seem from the language of the book that they were strongly tempted, perhaps even in droves, to leave the gospel, to return to an attempt to follow God beneath the old law of Moses. In this book, they are challenged time and again to realize the inferiority of that system, the promises simply are not there. Tonight, as we continue our study, we will find again the superiority of Jesus set forth. And you'll notice near the bottom, tonight it shall be the prophets to which we shall turn our attention. As we begin our study in light of that, let's again use the opening two verses as our thrust and synthesis this evening. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. If we simply pause at that point, midway through verse 2 admittedly, but we have already learned something rather dramatic. You'll notice on the very top, one of the first points that seems interesting for us to at least dwell on for a few moments has to do with the simple fact that God has spoken to man. I would attempt for each of us to give some thought to in fact what, what in fact that means. We each would readily concur with the fact that God is tremendous, He's mighty, He is infinite in many ways, truly great in every regard. 
In fact, the opening stanza in all the Bible simply says that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We have the eternality of God immediately set before us. He predated this universe and all things in it. And in fact, His greatness is set forth by the overruling sovereignty that He has over this universe and everything in it. That greatness of God is perhaps well appreciated in the words of the great prophet of old. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, we notice through the prophet there God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts and my ways higher than your thoughts and your ways. It truly is something to behold, isn't it? That this great and this almighty and this awesome God of heaven, nonetheless, motivated by love, has chosen to speak to you and me. Now, we'll need to ensure we understand the means by which he has spoken. But nonetheless, the fact remains that he, in a motivated by love, for God is love, 1 John 4, 8, desired to have fellowship with you and with me, the creatures that he has made. And in that desire for that fellowship, he has communicated with us, sharing forth the nature of his will, the desire of his being for you and for me, for our betterment, in such a way that we could ultimately live with him forever. God has communicated to us. Isn't it interesting to contrast that thought with some of the various figments of men's imaginations through the centuries, where various and sundry religions have been concocted in the minds of man, and the God or so-called supreme deity in those religions sometimes has nothing to do with those whom he has made. He is perceived as being so mighty and so high that he is unwilling or perhaps unable to communicate with those that he has fashioned and made. But it is not so with Jehovah God of heaven. He has spoken to us. He has communicated with you and with me. In Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, listen to some of the statements made in the days of the Old Testament. There it was the great prophet Jeremiah with God speaking through him who said, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. Jeremiah said, God, your words have been found. What had been found? God's words, for he had delivered them. He had set them forth. Notice also, not many chapters thereafter, in Jeremiah 22, verse 29, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. God had thus revealed and set forth his word in such a way that men could hear it and could become apprised of its contents. One chapter later in Jeremiah 23, verse 29, God there affirming is not my word like as a hammer, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. Perhaps it would be well to notice in the 119th Psalm, verse 105, a text we frequently use here at Pippin, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It is amazing then, isn't it, that as great and as infinite and as wonderful as God is, he nonetheless has had such an interest in you and me that he has given us this. He has communicated with us. He has spoken to us in the language of this opening verse in Hebrews chapter 1. Because now might we ask, in what way has God spoken? In what thoroughfare and channel has he utilized to convey his will to the human family? For after all, isn't it interesting that the Hebrew writer hits the ground running? 
There is no extensive introduction to this book like there is in some of the other New Testament books. The first seven verses of the Roman letter are an extended introduction and prologue to that book. The first few verses of the Corinthian letters form the same. Here he immediately says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. There is no lengthy introduction. Immediately there's a point to be made. It is, in fact, in language like this. The Greek rendering of those phrases that open verse 1 read like this. God who in many parts and in various ways, many parts and various ways, has spoken unto us, has spoken unto the fathers in days gone by. And thus, now he says, he has spoken to us by a different mechanism. Here doesn't it seem to be the case then that the world in so many ways has made a gigantic mistake. They have presupposed that God speaks in some way, but yet the text affirms that he doesn't. What are then some of the many ways and various mechanisms that God has used in the past? Because that may aid us to appreciate that he does not then speak by those ways today. For instance, wasn't it true in the early part of the Bible that there we find absolute record that he spoke to some people directly, as if one person would directly carry on a conversation with another. In Genesis chapter 6, he spoke to Noah and told him, you build an ark. He informed him of the flood that was about to come. He informed him of the preparation to be made, even the detailed specifics of the ark to be constructed. God directly conferred with him. Notice not many chapters thereafter, he spoke to Abraham directly and said, Get thee out of thy country and go into a country and a place I'll show thee. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. That was a direct conversation, wasn't it? Later, in Genesis 26, he spoke to Isaac in a very similar fashion. In Genesis 28, he spoke to Jacob in the same way. We get the idea then that was one of the ways in days gone by that God communicated with the fathers. But notice yet another mechanism that also was used. There were times that he spoke by way of an angel. I've listed a few of those examples for you to consider with me. In Genesis 19, beginning in verse 1, do you recall that there, there were two angelic visitors? First, they had conversation with Abraham, didn't they? Informing him about the destruction shortly to come upon Sodom and Gomorrah because Lot was there. That information, again, conveyed through the thoroughfare of two angels. Later, we notice in Judges chapter 13, God commissioned an angel on that instance to bring to Manoah and his wife the grand and glorious information that she was going to bear a son. That son, you and I, would come to call Samson. And he was, of, was of course, to be a very interesting deliverer or judge of the children of Israel. But you'll notice yet another manner by which God spoke. In addition to that, we have ample Old Testament references and evidence that he also spoke through the prophets. You and I, of course, will shed this, some more emphasis upon that later in the lesson tonight, which is why I didn't include it here. Perhaps yet a fourth mechanism. Might we also remember that he also spoke through the law of Moses. And that was very clearly set forth for us in passages such as Joshua 22, verse 5. As Joshua was nearing the time of his passing from this life, 
as he stood before Israel for the last time, he informed them critically about the fact that the law of Moses is that which God had delivered and what he anticipated and expected that they would follow. Thus, God had delivered his will through, at that point anyway, the nature of that law of Moses. To say all of that then does tell us that the Hebrew writer said indeed the fact when he said that at various ways and in sundry times he has spoken because that is true, isn't it? But you and I, of course, are interested tonight to cast the spotlight on the prophets. What point was the Hebrew writer making when he said that in sundry times various ways he has spoken in time past to the fathers by the prophets? What role did the prophets play? And what vital information did they convey? If you please, in what way might you and I appreciate their work even till this day? With that said, let's then give some thought to the prophets. And I have arranged it in such a way that we'll look at it in various subheadings or various sections this evening. First of all, might we in fact take note of the fact of the greatness of the prophets? First of all, as you give some thought to what I have at the top, let it be noted that as the Bible has the continual unfolding of the will of God from Genesis onward, we find the prophets playing a very vital and a very significant role in the continuing unfolding of God's messianic plan. That unfolding is perhaps seen in language like, like this. For isn't it interesting that the patriarchal era was past? I say that because note what the Hebrew writer affirmed. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake, past tense verb, he spoke to the prophets, to the fathers, by virtue of the prophets. In other words, we now understand that patriarchal era in which he spoke directly to individuals, that is no longer the era beneath which we live, and it's no longer the means by which God communicates. Notice also we can appreciate that there came a time in the Old Testament when, of course, the law was given to the Jews. We tend to call that the law of Moses. The Hebrew writer will make much of it in its discussion through this book. As that law was given, God again had expectation in language like Deuteronomy 4, verses 39 and 40, and Deuteronomy 8, verse 1, just to name a couple, in which that law was set forth with the expectation that they would be able and should follow it. Furthermore, can we not also see in that same light that the prophets filled a very vital position in that they challenged and charged the people, reminding them of what the law had affirmed and charging them to repent when they were found in error and to move back in the direction of the kind of life and the kind of person that God would have them to be. This would be an appropriate time, it seems, to give some thought to what the prophets actually accomplished and the way in which they did it. There is a rather significant misunderstanding, at least in the mind of some in our world today, about what constituted the prophets. In fact, there are many who think the central thing the prophets ever did was to foretell the future, to look down the stream of time and to notice and to proclaim what was going to happen at some point in the future from the day that they made their proclamations. Let it be quickly noted that was not the primary thrust of the prophet's work. 
only really about 10% of the prophetical books of the Old Testament are filled with what you and I would call telling the future. 90% of it is filled with direct statements of proclamation to the people of their day. They were God's spokesmen to the people of their day. And thus, Jeremiah was a clarion-called person who stood before the people of the temple and foretold to them, if you don't repent, you're going into Babylon. Amos and Micah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, all of them, in courageousness and boldness, had the fortitude to stand before the people of God and sometimes even other individuals such as foreign nations and to set forth to them what the law of God was and what God's expectations for them were. Now true enough, within the work of the prophets, they did foretell the future, but that was not the primary thrust of their work. Interestingly, as we give thought to the last 17 books of the Old Testament, or prophetical books as we call them, there are first the five books of major prophecy, commencing with Isaiah, terminating with the book of Daniel, and that's followed by 12 minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi. And those prophets, again, as they labored amongst the individuals of the earth living at that time, quite often, of course, the people of God, after the kingdom was divided, some of those prophets God sent to the nation of Israel, others to Judah. There were some who even labored amongst nations that you and I would call heathen or pagan nations, like, like the book of Nahum. All of that, though, tells us these were individuals who were taking God's message to the people of that day. When their prophecies, of course, included things that would occur in the future, it only gives us greater understanding of truly what a vital and great work those prophets carried out. For had they not been inspired by God, they certainly couldn't have told the future. And yet, because they could accurately and minutely foretell future events, that gives us even greater assurance that the things they proclaimed to the people of that day were absolute word of God, and God expected them, them to proclaim it in truth. Thankfully, on so many occasions, that's exactly what they did. That understanding then about the work of the prophets helps us then make this interesting point. As one studies the Bible, both old and new, one would have to come to the conclusion that the prophets are some of the noblest souls who ever walked the earth. For they labored, oftentimes under such duress. Jeremiah was cast into the dungeon on multiple occasions in that book. Why? because he stood forthrightly and told King Zedekiah what God had told him to preach, which was not what Zedekiah wanted to hear. Jeremiah didn't bend his preaching to fit what the audience wanted to hear. He preached the truth of God if it meant his own imprisonment. That reminds us of some of those apostles of the New Testament, doesn't it? For isn't that what happened to both John and Peter in the opening chapters of the book of Acts? And in Matthew 16, when Jesus came on the scene proclaiming and preaching, and when he asked them, Whom do men say that I am? What was the response? Some say you're Jeremiah, some John the Baptist, some Elijah, or one of the prophets. Even the Jews lifted high the understanding of the nobility of the work of the prophets. And when they were not, were not yet completely certain as to who Jesus was, they knew he was like one of the prophets. I'd submit to you that's a high compliment to the prophets of the Old Testament. To be likened to Jesus, 
in one's preaching to be likened unto Jesus, that is a high compliment indeed, isn't it? And yet Jeremiah is listed by name. Truly enough, when we have the blessedness of entering the glorious climes of heaven, and they ask for those whom you and I would like to preach, certainly Jesus will be first. Soon on the list will be Paul, but Jeremiah can't be too far behind. Understanding the prosperity and the courage that these prophets had as they preached in boldness, courageousness, and fortitude the absolute word of God for the people of that day. With those thoughts about the prophets made, it is interesting to notice just a few of the statements. In Hosea 12, verse 10, one of those prophets made a statement that God had revealed to the prophets His will. Thus again, they were the spokesmen of God. Centuries later in Nehemiah 9, verses 29 and 30, even that great leader of the children of Israel, who after the captivity still affirmed the power and might that God had committed in the work of the prophets. Isn't it interesting in Amos 3, 7, we find in that interesting passage that God does nothing now again, that was for that day. But God does nothing unless He reveals His secrets to His prophets. That alone lifts high, doesn't it, the work of the prophets. They were the ones through whom God informed the people about His desires and His will. Inasmuch as that statement is made, we begin our study tonight then in Hebrews 1 by noting the first thing that the Hebrew writer did was to assert the superiority of Jesus compared to those prophets. Let's perhaps approach it this way. If the prophets were as great as I have said they were, and as the Old Testament asserts that they were, and yet if Christ is far yet superior to them, isn't that an immediate strong foundation for the Hebrew writer to say, do you really want to leave Christ and go back to the law of Moses? Do you really want to leave the foundation of this better law and better promise to revert to that which is inferior? You can see again why he starts the letter with such boldness. He grabs their attention immediately. Notice another lesson we may glean having to do with the last days. You'll notice in verse 2 of Hebrews 1 it says, "...hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son." there's an immediate reference to the last days. That certainly suggests there were some former days or days that were not last. What were those former days to which the writer at least alludes? And what is, there, is that set of last days he spokes of as being in the present? Let's take a brief journey to put some of those thoughts back together. It is a rather interesting and profound conclusion as you note there with me in verse 1, as we've already discussed, we've noted that there, was, there were times when God in various ways and at various times spoke in a variety of ways. That's the point that he has just made in verse number 1. However, now notice there is a contrast. There is what occurred then. And now the Hebrew writer says this is what happens now. Has in these last days these last days. There clearly was a distinction and a difference between these last days and those days that came before. We might do well to let the prophets aid us in understanding what were those former days and what thus are these last days. That phrase, the last days, occurs more than once in the Holy Scriptures. 
perhaps the most famous in Isaiah chapter 2, verse number 2, where there we recall that God through Isaiah set forth that set of prophecies that foretold the establishment of the kingdom. For he says that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it will happen in the last days. That mountain of the Lord's house is that poetic description of the sturdiness and the greatness of the church. It was going to be established. And those set of days that would be descriptive of it and its sojourn and reign would be, of course, the last days. But notice how that also takes us to Joel 2, verse 28. There it was the prophet Joel, the prophet of Pentecost, who in that passage made prophecy about the set of events that would transpire on the day of Pentecost. That we understand well because Peter quoted it verbatim on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. For you might remember especially that opening verse, he said, This is that that was prophesied or foretold by the prophet Joel. Peter left us then not to doubt that this is that to which Joel referred. This is that to which he pointed. Thus, what then did Peter say? He said, the last days have now begun. You and I thus appreciate that the last days are descriptive of the Christian dispensation, the Christian era that you and I are now part of. Those earlier days then were the former ones when the law of Moses was in force, when the patriarchal era was in vogue. Today, in regard to the last days, that brings us to the very bottom of that slide in which we're able to see this conclusion. If it's the case that God spoke in former ways, in various ways that have just been discussed, but now He has spoken unto us by His Son, doesn't that top statement now ring greatly true. For certainly now God does not speak in any other way than by His Son. That's the implication of what the Hebrew writer has affirmed. Thus one greatly errs if he expects God to speak to him or to her by some other mechanism or means other than the revelation by virtue of His Son. He does not proclaim His will and His word in dreams anymore, in visions of the night, by way of angels, He has spoken unto us today by His Son. That thus helps us appreciate that all men thus stand on equal footing in that regard. For isn't it true, God is no respecter of persons, Romans 2.11. Thus, in consideration of that, again, we immediately see a great lesson that only leads us to the next one. For now that He has spoken unto us by His Son, what does that imply about the Son? What does it imply about Jesus? Well, it implies that He is the, the prophet. Notice there were many prophets in the Old Testament. Many of them, of course, were mighty and great in their ability to carry out in boldness the work of God, but none of them were able to compare favorably to what the Christ could do. God now speaks unto us through His Son. What is the means then through which God communicates today? It's through Christ. And doesn't that help us appreciate that Moses indeed was a great prophet? I make mention of that simply because it was quoted in the New Testament. Might we remember in Deuteronomy 18, Moses, before he passed away, 
directly said, There shall arise a prophet likened unto me. He didn't say he'd be directly identical to Moses. That's quoted in Acts chapter 3. When on that occasion again, on the, the shortly after the day of Pentecost, we find Peter affirming as he quoted that very text that Jesus is the one to whom Moses referred. He is that great prophet of God for my day and for yours. The greatness of that prophet highlighted, of course, in heaven to see that Jesus Christ is the means then that God uses to confirm or to set forth or convey the very speech and will of God to us. Let's notice two passages that seem so interesting and vital at this point in the lesson. We've just at least attempted to discuss that Jesus is the principal and great prophet today. Notice what occurred at his baptism. In Matthew 3, verse 17, on that interesting occasion, when John the Baptist immersed the Christ in the Jordan River, we remember that a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Later, we find on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter and James and John were there present, and with the Christ there appeared, of course, both Moses and Elijah, two of the principal prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. And yet Christ was there with them. And yet it was on that occasion that another voice also from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Thus, interestingly, we see this. Was it then still the case that one should hear Elijah? Was it still the case that one should hear Moses? Not at all. God said, rather than hear Moses and rather than hear Elijah, now hear him. Hear the Christ. It is now he who is the spokesman for the human family in terms of delivering the will of God to them. Fortunately today, you and I are thus blessed with the word of Christ that we're able to proclaim as we study and use it to help others know what they need to do to be saved and how they're to worship correctly, how they're to live rightly. For we have the law of Christ at our disposal, referred to in language like that in Galatians 6, 2, as well as 1 Corinthians 9, verses 23 and 24. We have the word of Christ. Amazingly and rather powerfully, we have in John 12, verse 49, the following statement. If we are interested to see a very text that pinpoints the prophetical character of Jesus' work, maybe none do so any better than this one. In John 12, verse 49, it reads, Jesus speaking, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. That was Jesus talking. He said, The Father hath given me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. So was Jesus a spokesman proclaiming the very will of God? Sure he was. Sure he was. And thus we find then in the very work and language of the Christ, the greatness of the prophetical office continuing, but it is in the Christ. In fact, proceeding onward from that, let us look a little bit at the supremacy and the superiority of the priest of the prophetical work of Jesus. We earlier in the lesson tonight 
highlighted the greatness of the work of the prophets of the Old Testament. We lifted high the boldness and courage with which they labored to proclaim the will of God. Might we ask, what about the greatness of Jesus' work as prophet? He is proclaiming of God's will to you and to me. We start perhaps in Matthew 16, verses 13 and following by reminding ourselves how great the work of the prophets of the Old Testament was. But quickly thereafter, this is the very scene that reminds us of the background of the book of Hebrews. These Christians to whom the Hebrew writer was writing were greatly persecuted. The Roman government was not favorable to Christianity at this point in its history. The Roman Caesars, the various other leaders of the Roman policy and government, in many ways at this time they were greatly antagonistic to Christianity. Nero and some of the other rulers ultimately aided to put some of the apostles to death. That's how much they detested it, they were uninterested in it, and they did not want others to follow it either. Later, as John would write the book of Revelation, part of its backdrop is also the difficulty and persecution that individuals suffered and endured because they were Christians. In chapter 13 of the Revelation, they were unable to buy, sell, and get gain. In chapter 6, beneath the altar, John saw martyrs, those who had been beheaded for the cause of Christ. Notice again, why had they been killed? It wasn't because they had violated the law of the land. It wasn't because they were murderers or in some other way criminals. They had been beheaded for the testimony of God, for the word of truth. They'd lost their lives. Notice again, the Roman government, at least at this point in its history, was not favorable to Christianity. These people thus to whom the book was written needed encouragement. How easy would it be if there were a soldier that would not allow you into the marketplace to buy food to feed your family if you did not honor the Caesar by bowing to him? They had a statue, a bust, if you please, of the Caesar. And in some instances, you had to fall prostrate before it or else you were not allowed entrance. How easy would it have been to get some food to feed your wife and children to simply bow before it, despite the fact you claim to be a Christian? It certainly would have been a tempting thing to do it, wouldn't it? And that again helps us see that if they who had followed the law of Moses were not persecuted... Why don't I give up this Christianity, they'd say. This is causing me to starve to death. It's causing hardship for my family and children. That's the very situation in which the Hebrew writer says, think twice before you leave Christ and return to the law of Moses. Think twice. Jesus is superior to the prophets, as great as they were, and as noble servants of God as they may have been, Christ is greater. He is more superior to them. He, as we'll learn in chapter 3, is a son ruling over his own house. Furthermore, you can see with me, in the language of Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3 again, it's this very Jesus in verses 2 and 3 who especially is described in language like this. He is the very brightness of God because we notice He hath appointed Him heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, 
and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Could it be said that any of the prophets did any of those things? Were the prophets involved in the creation of the universe? Are the prophets involved in upholding all things day by day by the word of their power? Did any of the prophets die for your sins or mine? On every instance, the answer is no. But yet Christ did all of them. He does uphold all things by the word of his power. He is the very image, in fact, of the God of heaven. And it is he who, in fact, purged us from our sins. That alone lifts high the, prof the prophetical work of Jesus, doesn't it? And it helps us see the greatness and grandeur of all that we see in his labor. Perhaps one final thought tonight, and the lesson will be yours. As we have discussed a bit about the prophets of the Old Testament, it might well be asked, is then there any work today of prophecy like the work that took place then? There are those in the world who claim such. They claim to have a message delivered to them particularly by God that hadn't been given to anybody else. And they thus take the liberty to speak it. And quite often, as one will readily find, it doesn't harmonize too well with this book. But if we would read 1 Corinthians 13, 8, we would learn once and for all that the days of prophecy have passed. That was an inspired man who wrote it in that text, that when prophecy shall cease, that is to say, shall fail. You'll know, you and I notice that that time has now come. God doesn't operate in that way today. And thus, to close our lesson tonight, we've learned the greatness of this opening part of chapter 1, helping us see Christ's greatness in comparison to the prophets. And I chose to summarize it in words like this. We've been reminded again about an impressive lesson on encouragement, encouraging us to be loyal and full of allegiance to Christ no matter what the circumstances surrounding us may be, because Christ is greater than the prophets. It makes a fascinating study to study about Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others, and we should strive to learn about their labors and their efforts. But in comparison, Christ is far greater than they. His work is full of far greater promises and far greater character. And so tonight, as we turn our attention to the 27 New Testament books and the prophecies that Christ has revealed, might we ask, are you and I living in harmony with those prophecies? Not striving to bind again the law of Moses or other ways upon the human family, but yet to look to Christ as the prophet of God today, delivering his will, the very will of heaven. Tonight, one of those things Christ revealed was what you and I call the plan of salvation, in which we understand the entrance terms to the church and that which must be true in order to be saved forevermore. We need to be a Christian, and that demands we believe Jesus to be the Son of God, we repent of our sins, we confess His name as the Son of God, and we are baptized for the remission of our sins. If we've done that, but there has been sufficient publicly known sin in our life, then we need to let others know of our change of heart, our change of mind, our desire to be again right with God and with others. Thus, in the way to accomplish that, we find... If that's the case in your life, let others know of your intent to repent. 
and you're in fact changing heart and mind and confess the error of your way. Tonight, if we could be of assistance in that way or the former to assist you in becoming a Christian, it would be a delightful honor for us and it would be a life-changing event for you. If we could be of assistance in either of those ways tonight, we would ask you to let us know in what way we could be of help. While together we stand and while we sing.